ever had the feeling you're destined to do something big, but you weren't sure what, because maybe it has never existed yet. You are in the right place. This is the Pagan Monastery Podcast, and I'm your host, Danica Boyce. We know by now what we don't want, so let's start building the traditions, the rituals, and the sacred places that we do want. I believe that with clarity of purpose and love, we can do absolutely anything together. On this podcast, you'll find heaps of inspiration for touching into your innately abundant nature while you follow and help create the unfolding story of how, together, we established the first pagan monastery in Europe. It's coming. We deserve it. So let's get building. Welcome to the Pagan Monastery Podcast. Before I begin this episode, I want to give you an important heads up that because I've been transitioning my business over the last couple of weeks, I am in the process at the moment of shutting down my website that hosts all of my online courses because I'm putting aside teaching online. And that means that from Monday, May 9th until Thursday, May 12th, all of my previous courses are on sale at 50% off, with the exception of the interactive ones, of course. So if you're new to my work, these courses encompass paganism, folklore, abundance mindset, money mindset, business, and life-affirming ethical approaches to all of the above. You can find the link in the show notes to purchase any of these courses at half off, including my two most popular offerings so far, Abundance Paganism, a six-unit immersion in the intersection between embodied abundance mindset and pagan revival, and Money is My Boyfriend, a masterclass in money mindset that is just packed (laughs) with information. These two offers are the ones I hear from people most often saying, this changed my life. So if you've ever been curious about taking an online class with me, this is your last chance to access these before I take them down forever. Now for the episode. I've called this episode today Beyond Renunciation. And my initial instinct was to call it Against Renunciation, which is kind of hilarious because the idea of this episode, I'll give you a little summary right now, is to think about our instinct to oppose things and the way that it echoes a larger structure that's at work in Western culture over the last thousand years or more. A general tendency to think in black and white, in opposition, in binaries, good, bad, light, dark, male, female, etc. And there is a really important aspect of early Christian monasticism that will come up, I believe, the more that we discuss pagan monasticism. And I would like to offer a frame for how to work with this idea in a way that is generative and helpful and feels good and does the kind of work that we desire to do as pagans, I understand. And that work is relishing in diversity and complexity and moving toward more Earth-positive, more human-positive, more permissive and multiple ways of being and viewing life and the world. (laughs) And so 
There is this seed that was planted by Christian doctrine in the early days of Christianity. So it exists in Christian scripture that led to Christian monasticism in the first place, was the primary motivator for people to run off by themselves into the desert. And I'll tell you about it now. So in the New Testament, that's the part of the Bible where Jesus appears, Jesus says to a rich young man at one point, there's this anecdote, he's speaking to a rich young man, and the rich young man asks him, what must I do to be saved? So there's already something kind of interesting in that dynamic that he, this young man believes that he is fallen. He's already taking that for granted, that there's something wrong with him and that he needs to be rescued by the divine. So this is one of the premises at work in Christianity and not exclusively Christianity, but it is, you'll see quite an emphasis. So he wants to know how to be saved from his sin, his sense that he's not good or that he's done wrong. And Jesus tells him to keep the commandments and love your neighbor as yourself. So there's these 10 commandments that you might know about if you're familiar with uh, Christianity and Judaism. But this young man was not satisfied with the generic, be a good person, you're fine, response that he got. So he kept pressing. And under this pressure, Jesus said to him, okay, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And so this is the main inspirational passage for, I mean, many aspects of Christianity, the idea of poverty being a virtue, and also the the way that he acquired apostles, people following him around. But also it is the desire to be perfect, to ascend past the human experience of having different qualities and different benefit cost (laughs) analysis. If you want to be non-human, if you want to become like God and unite with God according to the Christian concept of God, which is outside of the earth and very different, very other from the human and the earthly, if you want to become perfect in that way, then you need to reject your possessions. You need to reject pleasure. You need to reject and renounce the ways of the world. And so the world in pre-Christian times might be hard to define because the world is everything. It's what some people might now call the universe. But in this Christian context and the way that it especially developed over time, the world is in contrast to the divine. It is in contrast to heaven. Earth is the opposite of sky and sky as a symbol of non-material divinity. Heaven is where everything is perfect and that's where you get to win (laughs) after you decide that the things of this world are bad. So monasticism in its core at the early stages, I wouldn't say that contemporary monasticism necessarily fully embraces this all of the time, but the original impulse in Christianity was to embrace suffering, to embrace prayer, to constantly battle against the pleasures and the quote-unquote temptations of the world that previously would have been considered a good, right? 
These are things that the human body and the human spirit delights in. Experiences of materiality, of sex, of plant life, of enjoying food, of eating meat, of, um, and eating meat doesn't have to be a value of pagans specifically at all, but that was one of the things that monks renounced. So the definition of monasticism was to renounce the world, was to say, no, I am anti-world. I'm going to make my own little place where the world can't distract me, and I am going to meditate on the the non-being that is God, the anti-physicality that is what Christianity has framed as divinity. And it's above this earthly experience that I can have in my body. And this idea of perfection being not embodied and outside of the world originates in the belief in original sin. That doctrine came from a story you might be familiar with. It's primary to Christianity as well. And this is the belief that humankind is fallen, as in it used to be in a state of grace, and I guess the grace was up somewhere, and now they've fallen lower, and they are separate from God now because of the moment where this character Eve ate some fruit in the Garden of Eden, and basically humans chose free will in that moment is the idea. So in some ways, not only is early Christianity very anti-material, it's also very anti-empowerment. If you think about what happened there in that gesture of choosing to do the thing that the master, the Lord, the God said not to do, the person chose free will. And our free will in this narrative is what made us unworthy in the long term. And I would say that the pre-Christian idea of free will would probably be somewhat like the inverse. Becoming enslaved to an external authority in most natural experiences of being human would be undesirable, I could say. In St. Benedict's Rule, which is one of the most influential documents as a guideline for how to build and run a monastery in Christianity, of course, One of the highest virtues is obedience to authority, and that's the authority within the monastery, the hierarchy in place there, and also the hierarchy of the universe that is understood to be hierarchical in this tradition, right? That there's an up and a down, and the up is better than the down, which is not an assumption in pre-Christian thought in general. And there's another aspect of St. Benedict's rule that was not unique to St. Benedict's rule, but is a theme throughout early Christianity and still appears now in a lot of the metaphors that are used. And that is the idea that the collection, the group of monks, the community, is a scola, that is a martial regiment, a group of soldiers who are metaphorically at war with certain aspects of their own nature. And so that would be their willfulness, their free will, and also their desire for pleasure. (laughs) These are aspects of life that I personally think are extremely valuable, and if nothing else, are natural and neutral. Our ability to advocate for ourselves, you can probably imagine, in this moment in time, becomes thrown into relief. We can see that 
obedience is no longer a particularly valuable mode of being and that personal will and movement toward what feels good is actually the source of liberation and positive social and environmental change. At least this is something that I believe personally. There's a pretty cutting criticism recorded from Rutilius Namatianus, the prefect of Rome in 414, and I'm reading this from C.H. Lawrence's Medieval Monasticism. This is a, a pagan leader at this time, and he is also an imperialist, so I probably wouldn't agree with his political sentiments, but he makes an observation about how monks appear at that moment to pagans, which I think is a pretty interesting document for us to have access to. And I'll read it to you. I think that he sums up quite well the way that monasticism sits in relationship to previous ways of being. He refers disdainfully to the monks whose island he passed on his voyage. He says, It's a filthy island filled by men who flee the light. Monks, they call themselves, using a Greek name, because they will to live alone, unseen by man. Fortune's gifts they fear, dreading its harm, mad folly of a demented brain that cannot suffer good for fear of ill. And you probably notice that there is a real strong emphasis in our current culture on ideas of the oppositionality between good and evil. If there's a political candidate who wants to other a certain country to create a war, they will call those people evil. And we will recognize what they mean by evil because it is this concept that is totally embedded in modern Western culture. But I want to pick it apart a little bit right here and just point out that this idea, this black and white morality of good and evil, didn't necessarily exist in pre-Christian religions. And if it did, in pockets here and there, it wasn't a major emphasis of any particular spiritual tradition that I'm aware of in pre-Christian Europe. Of course, there's a strong preference for things that are good, feel good. And even in this passage from this pagan prefect of Rome, we hear him referring to good and ill. But there's this overemphasis and kind of a perversion of those ideas, an inversion of them in Christianity that he's pointing out in that comment, the idea that you might accidentally slip into evil <laughs> by following what feels good. That's a, the sort of major gaslighting of Christianity. That's what, what's good is actually bad. And the only way that you can trust that you're doing something good is to reject everything, to renounce everything, that there isn't good in the world. That's a really poisonous way of thinking that I think we still very much embrace a lot in, especially in activist discourse. I've noticed I used to consider myself anti a lot of things. And I've become over time, over the years in the act of actually doing activism and living activism, I've become rather suspicious of when I call myself anti something and curious about what more complexity might be available in that moniker, in that identity? Because when I identify as being in opposition to something, I've noticed that it kind of 
drains my energy. It actually makes me feel less empowered because I am suddenly being defined in opposition to something else that I see as threatening. And I move into a space of fear and of pressure and of kind of obsession with the thing that I don't want when I know with reflection, when I'm in meditation, when I'm calm, that there is an abundance of alternatives to that thing that I consider evil and also that thing that I consider evil. So let's take capitalism, for example. The thing that I have formerly opposed or have told people that I'm opposed to, that I'm anti, that thing often, when you dig further and further, is such a large and amorphous and complex question and system that has developed over thousands and thousands of years that I can't actually intelligently define it in a way that would be particularly actionable for me, that would be really clear and simple and would allow me to feel empowered in doing something about it. If there is some aspect of what I don't like about the system of capitalism, as we're calling it right now, which again, I'm not certain I know exactly what it is, the more I look at it, the less it seems like something that I could even define. If I choose an aspect of capitalism that I don't love, that I really do wish would go away and stop, and I want to change it, what I think is actually the best, most effective method for doing that is to look into, first of all, how that makes me feel and what that aspect. So let's say, for example, an aspect of capitalism that I don't like is exploitation. There's this sense that everything is valueless, which you could say comes from that idea of the world being devoid of meaning in life that comes from Christianity, or at least was exploited by certain people who wanted to control people within Christianity. So let's say exploitation is an aspect of capitalism that I don't like. And I could stop there and I could say, I'm anti-exploitation, and I could yell at people who are exploiting things, and I could spend all my time battling being a, a soldier for what? For Earth, I guess. I could be a soldier for Earth. You know, identifying what's wrong is incredibly necessary. Critique is the foundation of change. But if we stop there, and if we just find ourselves constantly tilting against windmills, is that an expression? <laughs> if we're just fighting the man all of the time, we are obsessed with the man. We're giving all of our energy to the man. You know what I mean? We are becoming exploited by our very attempts to stop exploitation from happening. And so for me, what I have done and what I have made my life's work is to pivot and think, okay, what am I upset about, about exploitation? Well, it feels really sad to feel like nothing around me is alive. That actually, in some ways, upsets me more. The emptying of meaning. It feels very lonely to think about other people, other objects, other beings, other plants, animals, this planet not mattering not being really alive. It makes me feel frightened and also it makes me feel valueless. And I think that probably if I were really unwell, it would cause me to treat other people as if they had no value, even in my attempts to fight exploitation, if you know what I mean. So the antidote for me on a really basic, really functional level is to start behaving in a way that is a remedy to that feeling of 
disinhabitation of the world, of emptying out of meaning, of exploitability, of disposability, right? Because that's what's behind exploitation is the belief that things are disposable and people are disposable and animals are disposable, etc. So if I believe and I promote the belief that the world is richly inhabited with spirits, that everywhere you turn you are in company with something living and with a rich history and full of love, and if I go around feeling that way and telling other people how to feel that way and modeling feeling that way and telling stories about life being that way, about how I encountered an elf in the hills of Iceland, for example, which is something that often happens here. People will tell this story. If I go around focusing on that, I am creating new material. I am not identifying myself in opposition to anything. I'm not giving away my identity. I'm not exploiting myself to be against something, to be anti-something, to renounce something. Renunciation as an identity or as a way of life is a way of suffering. It's a way of loss. And it just feels really wasteful and unnecessarily unpleasant when we have so much life force. And when we feel anger, when we feel resentment, when we feel disappointment, I feel so much disappointment in the world and have in my life. I know that feeling. That's where I'm coming from as an activist. That's where I'm coming from as someone who wants to build with you this new community. I know what it feels like to be unhappy with the way that things are. And I choose instead of being in the business of battle, which is wasteful, which premises disposability, I am here for building with you what I want to see and being vulnerable in that and being willing to make mistakes and try and fail and see what happens when I just playfully, joyfully, perhaps naively put myself into the world and just start making the thing I want to exist. Just start making the communities that I want to be a part of. So I want to encourage you to think about when you're imagining pagan monasteries, when you're imagining your life. If we want to build something really sustainable this time, if we want to build something that's part of a worldview of generativity, of affirmation, of life, and of rich, rich value already existing, accepting what is and building on it, we don't want to build that community. We don't want to build that vision on oppositionality and rejection of what is. We want to build it on neutrality and cheerful optimism and faith in our ability to make something different happen, to see the world from a different angle. And that angle doesn't have to be complicated. It's more of an embodied feeling of acceptance and willingness to try than it is any abstract philosophical structure of good, bad, not good, complexity, how do we structure these things? You don't have to know that. You just have to know what feels good and really trust your instincts. So it's kind of the inverse, again, of this idea that we need to know some overarching truth that's beyond us and looked to an authority for it. It's 100% what feels good to me? What feels true to me? What feels real to me? I trust in your ability to decide for yourself what morality can look like. I really do. So my offering today is just the consideration. When you are in a moment where you want to reject something, 
where you feel like you have an opponent and you're in battle with them. I'm sure this happens very often at this moment in time. I know that it does. Instead of rejecting, instead of renouncing, what would happen if you focused your effort in redirection? I know that the best warriors, <laughs> thinking of judo right now, will use the force of their opponents in order to disarm those opponents, right? There's so much energy flying around at all times, including our own anger, that we can redirect in a gesture of trust and positivity towards what we most dream of. We may feel mourning from being detached from community and meaningful culture and connection to land. And that is a huge source of energy. That's actually a huge source of power. Power and energy are neutral, right? They aren't morally good or evil, except for in our preferences. So use the intelligence that you have. Use your embodied instincts to notice where you wish to direct the energy that comes your way that you can witness to direct the influence that you have on everyone that you talk to every single day. Let's take our sadness and anger, and instead of using them as a weapon against the world, as has been done for so long, let's transmute that into positive action. Because I know that our suffering is so often just a desire for love and connection underneath an angry mask. And I'm here with you to do that work. There's a strong inclination in the pagan community, I know, because I've been a part of it at times, to reject the modern itself, right? We want to reject what happened after industrialization. We want to reject what happened after enclosure of land. We want to reject capitalist global financial systems that keep billions of people in wage slavery. We want to reject modern buildings. We want to reject all kinds of aspects of the culture that are harmful and that we can see that the roots of in the past and we wish we could just renounce them altogether. And I know that that will be a part of what comes up as we develop pagan monastic communities. There will be probably some communities that are here with the intention to renounce what's going on. And I think that that's a really helpful first step. I just want to offer the perspective that in the pagan worldview, in the pre-Christian worldview, and also just the pre-industrial worldview, time is not linear. So nothing can be lost. Nothing can be fallen. We are in an enormous and multi-layered cycle at all times. And if we reject a certain period of history in favor of another, we're kind of missing the point. Because the idea is to be in the present, is to find the present sacred, is to have devotion to the earth as it is, not as we wish it would be. I believe that's the sacred calling that we are given as modern pagans. I feel like that's some of the best work that we can achieve together. That's all for this episode. I hope that it stimulated and inspired you. If you're interested in any of my courses online from the last two years, again, this is your last chance to get them and to get them at 50% off. If you get online, you can find them through the show notes right here on the podcast before Thursday, May 12th. 
You can message me with any questions you might have about the courses. All of the information about them is in the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening today. If this episode touched or inspired you, it would mean a great deal to me if you rated and positively reviewed it, and you shared it on social media, email, or regular old snail mail. Your support is invaluable to this project. If you want to connect with me further, you can find me on Instagram at danica.voice, or you can email the podcast and the Pagan Monastery project directly at paganmonastery at gmail.com. Thank you to Gadus Morgwa Ensemble for the opening theme music to the Pagan Monastery podcast. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon.